I, I love salt. I picked up uh, maybe that you do as well, uh, Joel. So I'm, I'm a real salt lover. I, I, I used to think it was bad for me, but now they've, they've sort of changed their tune a bit. They're not sure it's as bad as they used to think. So I have reasonably low blood pressure, so uh, it's all good. I can eat lots of salt. Um, um, but um, uh, I, I think you would agree that it would be disorienting if you reached for the salt with one of those kind of items of food that really requires it. We heard eggs, I agree, eggs have to have salt. Chips without salt would be inedible, wouldn't they? Um, so you reach for the salt, you see a salt shaker there, and you put it on, and you think you've just put salt on it. It is, looks like salt, but it adds no saltiness. It adds no, suddenly your chips just taste exactly the same. Um, that would be very disconcerting, right? And you would, I think you would say, I'm throwing this salt out, right? That's not doing me any good. And that's exactly what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in the passage that we just read. Um, now, I'm, I'm told that technically, in, in terms of chemistry, salt actually can't lose its saltiness. Is that, is that right? I think, I think salt, if it's salt, it will taste like salt. Um, but that's not the point, right? Uh, Jesus is making an analogy for us. Uh, he's saying it, it is possible uh, for those of us who are followers of his to lose our saltiness. And then he says, if we do that, that's a big deal. It's such a big deal that he says, we're, we're basically not useful for anything anymore and we're just good to be thrown out. Well, I think that raises an important question. And, and it's simply this, how can we as Christians be certain that we not lose our saltiness. How, how can we stay salty as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus? And I think it's particularly important because I think if we reflect on it for just a moment, it's pretty obvious that throughout history, many Christians have lost their saltiness, right? You don't have to be much of a student of history to, to recognize that throughout the centuries, an awful lot of Christians have acted in ways that weren't very salty, if, if you will, and, and still today that's the case, that Christians are often not um, bringing honor to the name of Christ, not acting in ways that, that reflect on him. Um, and then I think if we reflect on it just a further uh, moment, most of us would have to admit that we are guilty of that at times, that at times we're not behaving in ways that are, that are very salty. We're not looking that different from the world around us. So again, how do we stay salty? But maybe we need to ask another question first to, to zero in just a little bit more. What, what does it really mean for us to be salty in, in this world? Um, now in this passage, and, and you might want to keep it open in front of you, uh, this Matthew 5 passage, we'll be um, coming back to it. Uh, he, he uses this salt language in conjunction with another image. So he uses these two images side by side. Image of the salt, and what's the other image? Anybody pick up on that, what the other image um, is in that, in that little Matthew 5 passage? The, the light, right? It says you're the light of the world. So that you're salt of the earth and light of the world, and both images are meant to, to sort of convey the same thing. His disciples are to be salt of the earth, and then he, he explains a salt which doesn't lose its saltiness. And then there to be light of the world, and then a light uh, that is not hidden. 
but that gives light to all. So you see the parallel between those two images. And then both of these, he sort of explains by associating them with doing good works, so as to give glory to God in heaven. In other words, to be salty or to be light means to reflect God and his ways to the world around us. Um, and, and if you want a little bit more of a sense of the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about, um, it helps, I think, to just put it in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so what comes uh, right before it is the Beatitudes. Jesus has just finished describing this quite different way of living, quite different value system to the world around us um, in, in the, the, the Beatitudes that, that most of us will, will be familiar with. Um, and then just immediately following this section on salt and light, uh, he talks about um, uh, anger and not letting the sun go down on our anger. Uh, he talks about loving our enemies. He talks about lust and, and um, raises the bar for expectations in, in these areas. So all this is part of the context of what Jesus is talking about. Being salty means to live in these ways then. And according to the two images which Jesus uses, he's saying that when we do, we cannot, and this is the key, we cannot fail to impact the world around us. Both those images have to do with that, don't they? Food with salt is different than food without salt. It's changed by the addition of salt. When you shine a light in darkness, it changes things, right? The, the, it's not darkness everywhere anymore. There's now a light in the darkness. So to be salty, is to live in such a way that we reflect God in the world and we influence the society around us. We have some sort of an impact on the society around us as a result of, as a result of that reflection. So when we ask ourselves, how do we stay salty? I think maybe another way that we can phrase this, a sort of a paraphrase of that question, is to say, how do we as Christians reflect God in the world around us in a way that influences society for the better. Now, let me just say that again because that's sort of the headline for what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. How do we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, how do we reflect God in the world around us in a way that influences it for the better? How do we go about doing that? Well, I think in, in one sense, we all already know the answer, don't we? It's, it's simply by continuing to live as Christians, as, as followers of Jesus, as ones who've put our faith and our hope and our trust in Him. Continuing to live as though the gospel is true every day and, and, and reflecting that to those around us. But I want to flesh that out just a little bit. And I want to focus on three aspects in, in particular. Um, there, there are others that we could mention. I'm not claiming that this exhausts the subject. Uh, but I do believe that these are key and at the heart of it. And the first is this. We're called, first of all, to stay close to the Lord Jesus Christ, to stay close to Jesus. In John 8, 12, Jesus puts it like this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is interesting because... In, in, the, in the Matthew passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we are the light of the world. But in John, he says that he is the light of the world. So which is it? Is it him or is it us? Well, we're only light because he's light, right? 
Our light is a reflected light. We're, we're kind of like mirrors. We have no light in and of ourselves. We never will. We're, we're mirrors. So the more we reflect him, the brighter we are in the world. He's the light of the world. And, and you know, a reflected light can be really bright, right? You've seen a mirror held up to the sun. It can be really blinding. Um, so the more we reflect him, the more we are light. Um, and that means that the only way that we will be light in the world is by staying close to him, by staying focused on him, by mirroring our lives as, as we look towards him. One of the things that constantly amazes me, and, and I say it amazes me not because I feel like um, I stand in a different place, it amazes me in, in my own life as well, um, but it amazes me the way that as Christians, and I think this probably describes most of us, you can tell me if the, if the shoe fits in your own life, we come to the Lord Jesus by faith. If you've come to Christ, if you're a Christian and you've put your hope and your faith in Christ, it's because you came by faith, right? You, you came to an awareness that all of your good works, that all of your efforts would never be enough, right? Somewhere along the line, it may have happened gradually, you may remember the time when you were four years old like me, or it may have been some other time uh, later in your life, or it may not have been that particular point, but some, in some way, uh, you are conscious that you gave your life to Christ. You stopped trusting in your own efforts. You re recognized only through the merits of Christ, his death on the cross, that, that you can have fellowship with God and you can have life and you can be forgiven of your sins. Right? If you haven't done that, you, you haven't come to Christ. You haven't put your faith in him. It's, it's absolutely fundamental to, to what it is to be a Christian. That's the gospel. Right? Um, so we do that when we come to Christ. We put our trust in him. We begin a new life in him. We're forgiven of our sins. We have the hope of eternal life. But then here's what tends to happen, I think, for many of us. Having done that, we then go on living our Christian lives as though, in practical terms, it mostly depended on us, on our efforts, on our smarts, on our study, on our understanding, on our systems, on our strategies, on our good efforts. We're pretty much doing it ourselves. Can, can anyone admit that that's what we tend to do in our Christian life? It's how it happens. It's the sort of the, the pattern so easily. Um, it's sort of like we, we come to Christ, we get the saved by faith part, got that, tick the box, and then we just sort of go back to living in our own strength, in our own way, on our own terms. The tragedy of it is that even churches and ministries see this happen so easily. In my, in my experience, this is unfortunately more often the norm than not. Churches have high ideals and they're seeking to do things for God and his kingdom, but in practice, it's done according to our own understanding, in our own strength, in our own way, trusting in, in human systems and so forth. I was so pleased to see that you have a, a prayer meeting every Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Um, a lot of churches have done away with prayer meetings. I think if we're not praying, then in practice, we're trusting in ourselves. Prayer is the demonstration that we're turning to God and depending on Him. So praise God that, that, that you're doing that as a, as a congregation. And may the Lord bless that and encourage you. Because this, uh, this way of doing things in and of ourselves, in our own strength, is absolutely the opposite of New Testament Christianity. 
Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20, a passage I'm sure familiar to many of you. And in John 15, um, Jesus puts it like this, abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. It's a, it's a promise. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's quite a categorical statement, isn't it? Much fruit, nothing. <laughs> Couldn't be more opposite. And you think, well, actually, no, people do all kinds of things. We've gone to the moon on our own as human beings, right? Um, but the point is, nothing that we do apart from him is of any lasting consequence, of any eternal value. It'll just burn, it's straw. But in him, much fruit. And then Jesus says, fruit that lasts, eternal fruit. Well, that's what we want, isn't it? But it's only in him. So our calling is to reflect Jesus to the world. But just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're actually reflecting him. Have you discovered that in your own life? It's not automatic. It's possible for us to lose our saltiness. And the only way we can stay salty is to stay close to him. So that's the first piece of it, it seems to me. The second is this. Remember that you're different. Remember that you're different. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, um, he says this. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's a passage that might be familiar to, to many of you. It's one of my favorite passages, John 17, very, very rich, this prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples as he's about to go to the cross. And he also prays for us in, in, in this passage, those who will believe because of his disciples. But I don't know if you've ever caught just how remarkable this statement is that Jesus makes. He says, they are not of the world just as, just as I am not of the world. Now think of the way in which Jesus is not of the world. We get that Jesus is not of the world, right? He's the Son of God. He, he, he came to us from heaven. Right? His identity is with, is with the, God the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's, he's clearly not of this world, but he came and lived in this world. And Jesus now turns to his, or speaks of his disciples and says, just as I am not of the world, they are not of this world. So you and I, who have come to the Lord Jesus, who have our life in him, we are not of this world in the same way that Jesus is not. It's not the stuff that we're made of. It's not where our identity lies. We're here, we live here. We're called to be here, to serve here, to bear fruit here. But it's not who we are. We really need to wrap our heads around this, and I think if we do, It'll have massive consequences. When we look at the world around us, when we see it, we see it as the place where we've been placed to live, but we are strangers and we are aliens and we're passing through with a work to do while we're here, but it's not our home. I think that's an emphasis that uh, in many Christian circles we've lost a bit. It used to be more part of our thinking. This world is not our home and we're aliens and we're just passing through and all that kind of language. And, and, and we need to hold on to that because it's so profoundly biblical. I remember when I was a youth pastor, uh, we did a whole weekend away on this theme with our, our teenage group, and, um, and we ended it by giving all the kids green dye 
And we talked about being aliens, 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 and then we said that the climax was we gave them green dye, and, and they all put this fluorescent green dye in their hair, and of course they loved it, because they were you know, young, young teens, and, and, um, and their parents weren't so thrilled when they got home. But it did, it did wash out pretty, pretty quickly. But, but just to, to communicate to them, you're different. You're not of this world. You're living here, but you're not of this world. What makes salt nice is its difference. Right? It stands out. It adds another layer to the food. To lose saltiness is to become indistinguishable from the world around us, to no longer stand out. Let me hasten to add, it's possible for us as Christians to stand out for the wrong reasons. I think some Christians historically, you know, some around today, who just think that if they're different um, in a sort of an obnoxious sort of way, that that's what it means to, to, to you know, to, to be aliens in this world, and they go about cultivating that difference. That's not what I'm talking about here. If we walk with Jesus and we do things his way, um, we will look different. We don't have to cultivate it. Um, but we have to acknowledge that we will always be in a different place from the world around us. We should expect this. And we should be on our toes questioning the assumption of the world around us and, 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 and the thinking of the world around us, the logic of the world's assumptions. Um, because we have the light of God, and it doesn't. We have a different way of thinking. We have access to God's wisdom. I love this wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 2, um, and then going into 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul contrasts the way that we think, who've received Christ, and the way that the world thinks. And he says, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And then he contrasts that. He says, the natural person, doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And then he goes on to say, but we have the Spirit of God. So we have an access to a whole different way of understanding, a whole different kind of wisdom than the world knows. I think uh, Joel earlier prayed about the issue of, of same-sex marriage. And it's so obvious, I think, for many of us on an issue like this that uh, we're coming from a completely different place from the world around us. Uh, we have radically different assumptions. Assumptions about what it means to be male and female. Assumptions about what the nature of sexuality is and what it's for, why God created it. Assumptions about the relationship of children and their parents and, again, how God created the family. Sadly, tragically, some Christians have today absorbed the cultural thinking on this, uh, rather than being shaped by God's wisdom in his word, they have lost their saltiness. I think that's a classic example there. When I was a little boy, I mentioned I grew up in France, my parents were church planters there. Um, when I went to school in the morning, often I, I remember my dad, I, I can picture the scene, we would go out past the little gravel in the, in, in the, in the front uh, garden and, and down the steps and there was an iron gate and I would swing open the iron gate and begin to walk off. And my dad from, from the house would look down and say, goodbye, David. And often he would say this, last words out of his mouth, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And I'd hear those words ringing in my ear as I walked off to school. And sometimes, just because I like to hear it, I knew the answer, but I like to hear it, I would say, who am I, dad? And he would look, to me, look at me and sort of throw his brow a little bit and say, with real intenseness, intensity, he would say, you are a child of the king. Don't forget it. 
I would walk to school thinking, that's right, I'm a child of the king. I'm different. Remember who you are. We're different. Thirdly, guard your mind. Philippians 4.8 puts it like this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Does that sound like most of the TV that you see these days? Noble, true, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. The Bible lays down a fundamental principle. As Proverbs puts it, as a man thinks, so he is. The things that we fill our minds with, these are the things that shape us, that determine who we're going to be in the world. Computer programmers used to like, do we have any computer programmers here? We do. All right, well then this will be familiar to you. Garbage in, garbage out. They still say that? Yeah. It has to do with computing code, right? If you put bad code in, you're going to get bad results. Well, our minds are a computer of sorts, aren't they? You put bad information in your mind, bad programming, that's what's going to come out, right? Um, what we watch, what we fill our minds with, determines who we are. And if we're going to be true to our calling as salt of the earth, we need to make sure that our saltiness is not being contaminated by other ingredients which don't belong. We have to do this proactively. We have to orient ourselves proactively, conscientiously, intentionally towards God's truth in our lives and turn away from those things which are lies and which will lead us away from his truth. This is why Paul says, we're to set our mind on the things above, not the things of earth. I love that, that, that language, that verb there, set your mind. It's active, isn't it? It's proactive, it's intentional. It doesn't just happen willy-nilly. It won't happen accidentally. No one has ever grown in Christ-likeness or grown in the mind of Christ accidentally. They've done it because they've made it an intention and pattern of their lives. They've pushed out certain things and they've absorbed consciously other things. This has always been true. I think, though, it may never have been more true than in our current age today. Why do I say that? I think there's two really important things happening in our culture right now at the same time. And I think many of us as Christians haven't fully taken stock of what a dramatic change this is. The first thing happening is that our culture is bifurcating more and more radically from a Christian view of, of, of many of the most basic aspects of life. Right? It was, our culture wasn't fundamentally Christian in a lot of ways before. But there was a lot of overlap between Christian values and Christian norms, and that's becoming less and less the case. Secondly, there's an explosion of available media. There's been an, a media explosion uh, probably unprecedented in history since the invention of uh, the press in, in the 16th century, right? The, the, the way that the internet has transformed the availability of media is extraordinary. Uh, we, we walk around now with computers in our pocket where essentially all of the world's knowledge, all the information more or less in the entire world is available to us with a few clicks, right? With a few swipes. That's incredible. Well, those two things taken together mean that the potential for our culture to corrode our Christian, biblical, Christ-centered view of reality has exploded. It's enormous. 
And yet I think many Christians haven't really stopped to, to take this in. Uh, I've seen some statistics recently in the U.S. that uh, as many as 50% of children raised in evangelical homes are not following Christ in their 20s. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I suspect it might not be that different. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, why this might be the case and, and many factors that, that play into it. Now, I'm sure that one of them has to be the increasing antagonism of the, of the surrounding culture. There's no question. So let me ask you a question. Do, do you have a media strategy, a thought through, consciously thought out media strategy for how you engage with this media explosion around? How do you decide which movies you'll watch, which TV shows you'll watch? Do you intentionally look for books, movies, or shows that'll be good for you? I like to ask myself a little question is, is it good for my soul? Am I gonna leave being drawn nearer to, to Christ after watching this or viewing this, or am I gonna be pushed further away? Um, do you have time off? when you deliberately just don't have screen time. I notice some of the schools do that now. They have no screen time. Get away from the, the screens altogether to, to give it a rest. I wonder what would happen if for each minute that Christians spent watching a movie or surfing the web or watching TV, they spent two minutes in God's word or in prayer. What do you think would happen? I think it'd be revival, <laughs> not you? Because we'd be filling our minds with something radically different. And I'm just speaking to adults. If you have children and you don't have a media strategy, I think you might as well be letting them play with scorpions. You should be more concerned about our children's uh, mental environment than their physical environment. Here's another related question. Does anything still shock you? Can you still blush? There are things that we would never have mentioned in, in, in polite company 20 years ago that are now we think nothing of. Uh, much of contemporary media, I think, is specifically designed to eliminate the last vestiges of modesty or taboo that any of us have ever had. I believe this is demonic. I believe it's an attack of the evil one on us. Paul says, be excellent at what is good, be innocent of evil. The world tells us that we need to be up to speed on everything. We need to be plugged in. We need to, to, to know all the latest sort of trends and be able to be conversant about it. But there are some things it's a virtue not to know. Uh, again, Paul says it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We don't just leave salt lying around everywhere, do we? On the bench, on the floor, to be scooped up somehow when we need it with all the other stuff mixed in with it. We keep it aside in a, in a separate container. Um, and then when we need it, we add it to the food. If we're going to preserve our saltiness, we need to learn to filter out some of the daily barrage of influences which come at us from all directions in the world around us. We need to learn to guard our minds, not so that we can just stay separate from the world, but because by our difference, that way we can impact the world. No one like the world has ever changed the world. Well, let me just close with this. Um, I'll come back to the question that we started with. How are we as Christians to go about seeking to influence the society around us? How are we to be salty? Some of us, like myself, working at Family Voice and, and, and others in similar positions are, are on the front lines. We're on the coal face, if you will, devoting all of our energies um, to doing just that. We appreciate your prayers and support. It's, it's difficult work, 
It's important work. Uh, we appreciate your support in that. But we can't just leave it to the professionals, <laughs> as, it, as it were. Um, each of us, I'm convinced, is, is called to be a part of that. Um, if we as Christians are going to positively influence society, I believe it'll only be because Christians living in Christian communities as a whole are reflecting Jesus to the world in our lifestyles, in our marriages, in our speech, in our choice of entertainment, uh, in our caring and showing compassion for the least of these around us, in all these ways and many more, in every aspect of our lives. That is to say, we're only going to change society if we're salty. And being salty is about our relationship with Jesus, first and foremost. Um, I'll just close with this. I, I, um, I mentioned that I was in England working on a PhD, as was my wife, and felt the Lord calling me to do that, looking um, at uh, changes in British society in the early 19th century. It was a history PhD. Uh, this is the age of people like William Wilberforce, some of you might be familiar with, who was involved in the abolition of the slave trade in the early 19th century. Um, and, and I was studying the, these Christians, uh, others like him as well as him. But do you know what impressed me the most about them? It wasn't their activism. They were remarkable how, how much they were doing in society. It was quite extraordinary. Um, they seemed tireless. <laughs> um, but what impressed me the most about them, as I read about their lives and read some of their diaries and, and their, their, their writings, is that they were on fire for God. They weren't social reformers, most of all, or first of all. Their social reform came out of a deep place in their walk with God. And they were passionate about walking with purity and holiness and integrity before the Lord. And they kept close accounts. And they were on fire. They were in love. <laughs> Everything came out of that. I'm convinced that that's the only reason they were successful, is because of that integrity in their walk with Christ. They were, in many ways, the, the overflow from a revival that swept through Britain in the 18th century and it impacted their lives, and they in turn impacted society. Um, so that's how to be salty, that's why they made a difference, and I pray by God's grace that it might be true.